Happy uh, last Sunday in October. Um, you may not realize this, um, but October 31st is not the holiday you're thinking of. It's also Reformation Day, celebrating uh, Martin Luther and his nailing of the 95 theses on the cathedral door in Wittenberg, Germany, which created the eventually the Protestant movement. And so we've actually done a series on this as we were approaching the 500th anniversary of that date, 1517. And so if you're interested in the Protestant Reformation and why we think it's a big deal, um, I would encourage you to go back into our sermon archives and listen to the 14 lessons or so we did on the Protestant Reformation. But for now, uh, we're turning our attention to the book of Genesis, chapter 25, verses 1 through 11. And the title of our message this morning is God's Truthful Promises. In fact, we just sang about it, didn't we? Great is thy faithfulness. Also, by way of an infomercial, if you're interested in getting in on a, the ground floor of a brand new book of the Bible, verse by verse, that we teach at Sugarland, we're starting the book of Acts this Wednesday evening. And so you can join us either live or online, but I wanted to make you aware of that as well. We are now coming to the end, believe it or not, of the life of this uh, very pivotal character. This man that God used in such a strategic way, this man Abraham. Just like without Martin Luther, 500 or so years ago, we wouldn't have have had the Protestant Reformation. Had God not strategically worked in the life of this man Abraham, we would not have the nation of Israel. If we would not have had the nation of Israel, we would have no Savior or Scripture because those things by divine providence came to us through the Jewish people. And so Abraham is one of those very, very key characters in the Bible, a very pivotal person. And we now move into chapter 25, where we have Abraham's marriage to Keturah, verses 1 through 6. And then if time permits, we'll take a look at Abraham's death, verses 7 through 11. Here is kind of a real fast outline, if you will, of chapter 25. Abraham and Keturah, verses 1 through 6, Abraham's death verses 7 through 11, and then what happened to Ishmael and his descendants, 12 through 18. Then you have the birth of Jacob and Esau, verses 19 through 26, and then the selling of the birthright from Esau to Jacob, 
verses 27 through 34. Don't panic. We're not going to do all of that today. But it's interesting how the life of Abraham concludes as he takes on a new wife. And we have the marriage of Abraham and Keturah, verses 1 through 6, and the children that came out of that union. First of all, notice the marriage of Abraham to Keturah. It says, Abraham took another wife. And people say, "Uh uh-oh, you're not going to promote polygamy or anything, are you? No. Sarah has already died. Genesis chapter 23 and verse 1. When Sarah died, Abraham, according to Genesis 23 verse 1, was 137 years old. Sarah was 127 because there's 10 years between Abraham and Sarah, making Abraham 137. And Abraham is not going to die, according to verse 7 of Genesis 25, until the ripe old age of 175. So there's 38 years left in his life. No Sarah. So he marries again. And he has children through her. Six children total that are described in these verses. That kind of raises an interesting question because a lot of people are curious about divorce, remarriage. When is it permissible to remarry? And you ask uh, two theologians that question and you'll get like five answers kind of thing. But this much is certain without getting into that controversy When a spouse dies, that marriage terminates, allowing the living spouse to remarry. And you'll see that in the book of Romans, chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. It says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband so then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall, be, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So Sarah has died. That marriage is dissolved in an earthly sense. And now Abraham is free to marry, and he marries another wife. This second wife, her name is given, her name is Keturah. Keturah in Hebrew means perfume or incense. I would have to take from that name that she was a very likable, pleasant person. The power that a wife has over her husband is powerful and undeniable. I believe that marriage can be, if things are not working correctly the way God has ordained them, probably the closest place you could get to hell on earth, this side of the grave. But I believe the opposite is true. 
if two people are committed to the divine principles of God, if a, if a husband is committed to loving his wife as Christ loved the church, and the wife is committed to honoring and respecting her husband, exactly what the book of Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33 says to do in marriage, then marriage can be as close as you'll ever get to heaven, the side of the grave. I'm reminded uh, of the book of Proverbs, chapter 21, verse 9. He says, where Solomon says, it's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And Solomon would say something like that because he was a man. I wonder what some of, wonder what his wife said of Solomon. In fact, Solomon actually had a lot of wives. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, talks about the power of a godly woman to win her unbelieving husband to the Lord. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 3, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding of the hair, wearing of jewelry, or putting on dresses. It's not against beautification. The Bible is not against that. J. Vernon McGee said it the best when he was asked, should a woman wear makeup? And he said, if the barn needs painting, then paint the barn. (laughs) But that is not where her ultimate beauty comes from. He says, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. A woman, just through her character, can preach amazing husband, uh, amazing sermons, I should say, to her unbelieving husband. And I take it that Keturah, because of her name, perfume or incense, was that kind of a person. She was a blessing to Abraham's life from age 137 to age 175. Now, you say, well, pastor, you don't really expect us to believe that a man that old would have children at that age. Well, the Bible says he had six through this new marriage. And we have a description of the sons born to Abraham and Keturah. She bore to him Zimron and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Through that union came six sons. I don't know if you guys can read that well or not, but there's Abraham and Keturah at the top, and then come the six sons or children born from that union. The first is named Zimrod, and he settled, like all of these children and their descendants, they settled not in the land of Israel. And that one of the, is one of the reasons why this section is here. It's distinguishing these six sons and their respective wives and their children and showing you exactly where they went. Because the promised land itself is reserved for who? Isaac, the child of promise, born through Abraham and Sarah. So we have son number one. His name is Zimron. He settled, we believe, west in the West Arabian coast. 
Um, these largely would be considered the Arabic countries. There's the promised land in blue there, light blue, that belongs only to Isaac. Zimran settled in Arabia. Then you have Jokshan. We believe he settled in South Arabia. Uh, Medan, who settled in the eastern shore of the Gulf of Aqaba, also in that general area of Arabia. Then you have Midian, who settled north, west, Arabia, and south of Sinai. Now, Midian is interesting because Moses himself would spend some time in Midian. In fact, you could take Moses' life, which lasted 120 years, and you can divide it into thirds. First 40 years of his life, second 40 years of his life, third 40 years of his life. First 40 years of his life, he was given a phenomenal education. And you know the story how he was taken in by Pharaoh's daughter and she was very good at business apparently because she went down to the Nile and brought out a prophet, so to speak. It's supposed to be a joke. I have to do something to keep you guys awake. And through the providence of God, he was raised with the best education you could have from age one roughly to age 40. And that was the divine providence of God because Moses was going to write the first books of the Bible that we call the Pentateuch. And then uh, around age 40, he, as you know, saw an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew. Through the course of events, he ended up murdering the Egyptian and he was very scared that he would be caught and tried for murder. So he fled into Midian for the next 40 years of his life on the backside of a desert. Doing what? Doing absolutely nothing. But acting as a shepherd, tending sheep. And I believe that was the divine providence of God because when you receive the best education the world has, there's a tendency to rely upon yourself to accomplish great things. You rest on your natural abilities. You rest on your degrees that you have. And God's word to Moses was, Moses, what I have for you to do is so significant in terms of leading my people out of the bondage of Egypt through the Exodus and writing the Pentateuch that I have to give you the next 40 years of your life, age 40 to age 80, where you're going to be reduced to next to nothing. And when I finally do call you, you're going to say things like, well, who am I to tell Pharaoh, let the Lord's people go? Moses at age 40 probably thought that he was competent for the job. I mean, how could you not think that given all of the privileges that he had? So God had to usher in him into the next 40 years of his life where he knew that he was absolutely nothing. First 40 years of his life, he thought he was something. The next 40 years of his life, he learned that he was nothing. And then the final 40 years of his life, he learned what God can do with someone who once thought they were a something and learned they were a nothing. And I say that because many people within the sound of my voice are in positions of menial 
work. Perhaps the work is beneath you. Perhaps you see in your life that you could do a lot more if just given the opportunity and the doors don't really open the way you think they should. I would tell you that that is God's plan for your life because God in that role of insignificance is teaching you things that you cannot learn any other way. God typically takes people who are gifted and talented and educated and reduces them to something that is far beneath their abilities. Because God has to show them that I can't execute what I want to do through your life until you are emptied of yourself. That's what's going on in the second 40 years of Moses' life. And so now Moses is in a position to be used by God. He's called by God. And God. he doesn't say to God, Boy, look at how successful I am, Lord. Look at how talented I am. Look at how much ability I have. He says, who, who am I to do this? And when you get to a point where you say, who am I to do this, Lord? Now, now you're ready to be used. Because now you are that pliable instrument in the hands of God. And God can use you as he wants. And had he not experienced that middle section of his life, I don't think the exodus through Moses could have occurred. And I don't think these first five books of the Bible that were studying, at least Genesis, would have come into existence as well. And so where was he in the middle section of his life? He was there in Midian, on what is called the backside of the desert. There's a reference to Midian in Exodus 2, verse 15. It says, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Much later in biblical history, 40 years later, it says, now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Apparently Moses met his Midianite wife in this place of insignificance. Many would argue that this son here between Abraham and Keturah Midian became the Midianites that we read about in the book of Judges that God subdued through Gideon, Judges uh, 6 through 8. We continue on with this list here, and we run into Ishbak. Who was Ishbak? He was an Edomite, and he settled, we believe, in southern Jordan. And then you have this interesting man here named Shua, Shua, it is believed, settled in the Syro-Arabian Desert. And it's interesting that in the book of Job, you run into this man named Bildad, one of Job's counselors. And I put counselors in quotes because they weren't very good counselors. They blamed all of Job's problems on himself, as if... God can't bring adverse circumstances into our lives as a storm of 
perfection rather than correction. Sometimes God brings a storm into our life to correct us. Other times he brings a storm into our life, not because we've done anything wrong, but just to perfect us, to bring us to a higher level of faith, a higher level of trust, a higher a higher level of dependency. And Job's counselors, Eliphad, Bildad, and Zophar, and then a guy who shows up late in the book of Job named Elihu, did not understand that principle, and they blamed all of Job's problems on himself, where Job kept saying all the way through that book, I've done nothing wrong. But anyway, Bildad, according to Job chapter 2, verse 11, is Bildad the Shuite. And so it's believed that this son here, Shua, eventually put into existence the lineage leading to one of Joseph's or Job's counselors. So what you see here in verse 2 is a total of six names, meaning Abraham had total in his life eight children, one by Hagar. That child's name is Ishmael. One child by Sarah, the child born of promise. That child's name is Isaac. Isaac is the one that is to, and his descendants is to inherit the promised land. And then you have these six sons that came from the union between Abraham and Keturah. And the Bible is very clear that all of them settled outside the land of Israel. You go down to verse 3, and now it gives a record of Jokshan's sons. And so what does verse 3 say? It says, Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. If you look at the chart here, you'll see the first of the six in the left. And from Jokshan comes Sheba and Dedan, two sons. Sheba, we believe, settled in southwestern Arabia, Dedan in southwestern Arabia, and we believe that Sheba and Dedan would represent modern-day Saudi Arabia. And that's very interesting because we, in our teachings, have taught on the great invasion of Israel that will take place in the last days. And it mentions a conglomeration of nations, Ezekiel 38 And 39, which will come against Israel. And it says in Ezekiel 38, verse 13, Sheba and Dedan. These are the characters we're reading about here. And the merchants of Tarshish with all of its villages will say to you, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, and to capture great spoil. Saudi Arabia will protest the invasion along with Tarshish or modern-day Spain. And that's a very fascinating thing when you think about it because those are the very nations of the earth today that are entering into or in the process of entering into the what are called the Abraham Accords, which are normalization agreements between... Israel and these foreign powers. Israel is saying, recognize us as a nation and we will open up to you trade, tourism, technology, etc. 
and the latest nations to fall under the influence of the Abraham Accords are Morocco, which is very close to Tarshish or Spain, and then a lot of the Gulf nations very close to Saudi Arabia are entering into those Abraham Accords as well. And for the first time you have an explanation, which we wouldn't have had for the last 2,600 years as to why Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish will protest this invasion. They protest it because they are in some sort of agreement or normalization arrangement with Israel. And so it's very, very fascinating how God is setting up the chess pieces for the end time drama. You look at the second part of verse 3, and now you have the sons of Dedan. It says, And the sons of Dedan were Asharim and Latushim and Let's see, Ed Jones' pronunciation was much better. Liu Mim, I think is how you say that. So here are these three sons of Dedan, and you can see them at the very bottom left of the screen, are identified not as individuals, but as tribes. These are the tribes that came out of the the three sons of Dedan. These all settled, many of them, we believe, settled in northern Arabia. That would be Ashtarim, Latushim, and then Liumim, if I'm pronouncing that right, we believe settled in Mesopotamia, which is that area between the Euphrates and the Tigris today called modern-day Iraq. The problem with me is when Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Remember Jesus said that? That means everything that God has put in the Bible is important. And so I believe that that concept relates to these names. The Holy Spirit has put these names here for us to understand. You move to Midian's sons, or Midian's sons, I should say. And there on the far right hand of the screen, you see Midian. And from Midian came six sons, excuse me, five sons. And you'll notice them at the beginning of verse 4. It says the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. And, and you said, I didn't think we spoke in tongues in this church. <laughs> But Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, um, Eldah, we believe mostly in northern Arabia. And then comes this summary statement. All these were the sons of Keturah. In other words, the union between Abraham and Keturah created these sons and grandsons and great-grandsons And I hope you're seeing in this the fact that God keeps his word. Genesis 17, verse 4. God is making good on a promise he gave to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. 
you would not just be the father of the nation of Israel, as significant as that is, but you will be the father of many nations. In fact, Abram's name was changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And so guess what? He's become the father of many nations. Just like God said would happen. You have to reach a point in your study of the Bible where you begin to see that if God says something, you can take it to the bank. Exactly everything God articulates will happen. Jesus made this point with the disciples in the upper room. He said in John 13, verse 19, from now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. And then in the next chapter, John 14, verse 29, Jesus told these disciples, now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. The book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 18, says it is impossible for God to what? To lie. When God lays down a promise, although the promise sometimes is articulated against all odds, it's just a matter of time before God moves heaven and earth to see that that promises fulfilled. Abraham, I told you you would not just be the father of Israel, but the father of many nations, and guess what? It's happening right here in Genesis chapter 25 verses 1 through 6. Here's a book that I frequently promote. It's by the late John Walvoord. It's called Every Prophecy of the Bible. I highly recommend it because as you read through it, Every time God makes a prediction, Walvoord shows the fulfillment. And if it's a prophecy yet to come, he makes that point as well. This one is yet future. And what you will see as you read through that, and there's a lot of prophecy teachers out there that are peddling nonsense. Jesus junk, I call it. Wrapping people up in sensationalism and all kinds of things. If you if you want to take in some good nutrients and eat something healthy rather than the prophecy junk food table, read something like this. This is something you can you can give yourself to because as you go through this, you'll see that everything that God says would happen happens. Which means every single prophecy or promise he's made to me as a Gentile Christian as a member of his church, that's going to happen too. Because God has a 100% prophetic track record. And Jesus in the upper room told the disciples, Hey guys, here are some short-term prophecies. Many of which are going to be fulfilled this week. Passion week. And when these things happen in real time, right down to my betrayal from a friend, by a friend, right down to how I'm going to die, right down to my resurrection from the dead. When you see these things happen in real time, you'll have the evidence that you need to believe that I am he, I am God, in other words. And let me tell you, those 11 in that upper room that he made this statement to, they went out subsequent to the day of Pentecost. They had ministries that, 
penetrated different parts of the known world, every single one of them died of unnatural causes, martyrdom. The only guy that didn't die of unnatural causes was John, because John was very stubborn and he just wouldn't die. They kept boiling him in oil, the church fathers tell us, and he won't die. What are we going to do with him? So Domitian had him marooned on a little island off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. John probably thought, gosh, my life is insignificant. What am I doing out here? And yet that's exactly where God wanted him. Because Jesus would show up on the island of Patmos in AD 95 and give to John a vision that we call the book of Revelation. And it is completely improbable, unlikely, if not impossible, if the prophecies of Christ in the short run didn't happen, that these men would go off to martyrs' deaths voluntarily for the cause of Christ. You are an image bearer of God, and an image bearer of God has an intellect And God will appeal to the intellect to show you that Christianity is in fact true. And one of the greatest proofs we have that this Bible is in fact from God is its capacity to predict things before they happen. Things are happening in Abraham's life because God said they would happen. These prophecies are to be literally construed, literally interpreted. And I'm here to tell you, based on this track record, that all of the prophecies yet to come, that haven't been fulfilled yet, right down to your arrival in heaven, will be executed in real time just the same way. And the Walvard book and books like it will cause your faith to increase, which is something we need in these last days, don't we? Where the church is being put into so much pressure and doubt, and confusion. So Abraham had children and grandchildren right up to age 175. That is an amazing thing, coming from a man and a wife, Abraham and Sarah, who couldn't have a child. And yet God restored that situation, and apparently God did a pretty good job Because he just kept right on having children with somebody else after Sarah had died right up to age 175. So six more children are added to Abraham's lineage. These all coming from Keturah. These settling outside the land of promise. The other two children are Ishmael from Hagar, Genesis 16. And then the child of promise, Isaac from Abraham and Sarah. And all of these other children are not inheritors of the promised land, but Isaac is. In fact, as you go down to verses 5 and 6, you'll see a contrast with Isaac. Notice, if you will, Genesis chapter 25 and verse 5. It says, Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. Verse 5 indicates that Isaac became the inheritor of the estate. 
which would make sense because Isaac is the child of promise. He's the heir of all things. So Isaac is dealt with by way of the inher- being the inheritor of all things, verse 5. Well, what about these seven other children, Ishmael and the six children that he had with uh, Keturah? You'll notice at the beginning of verse 6, but to the sons of his concubine, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. Isaac gets the estate. These others, seven others total, six from Keturah plus Ishmael, get gifts. So in place of the ongoing inheritance given to Isaac, these others get temporary gifts. So what you're seeing here is a probate plan, if we could call it that, an estate plan, acknowledging God's promises to Isaac as the inheritor of the land of Israel. And then Abraham put distance between these others through Keturah and Isaac himself. Look at verse 6. That's Abraham sent them away. These are the six from Keturah. From his son Isaac. And they went eastward to the land of the east. Not only were they not the inheritors of the entire state, they were a state, they were given one-time gifts, but he basically told them to move out of the promised land. Go east. So there's a big distance financially between what Isaac received and the others, and there's a big difference geographically between what Isaac received and the others. Abraham deliberately fixed all of this financially and sent them away while he was still living. So he wants to avoid the confusion that often happens in homes when somebody dies, who gets what in the estate. Abraham had such clarity on the promises of God and where each son fit related to the promises of God that he fixed his estate while he lived before he died. And these six others were sent eastward, east of the promised land into the Transjordan. Some, as we indicated earlier, went into Saudi Arabia. And you say, well, why are you belaboring all of this, Pastor? This is just a bunch of boring geography, history. Who cares? Let me tell you why it's a big deal. Islam reverses all of this. What the Bible makes crystal clear, Islam perverts it and makes it sound like these others are the inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, Islam comes along as a Johnny-come-lately in the 7th century A.D. and just looks at the Bible and says, no, we're going to make the child of promise, the sons of Keturah or Ishmael, when your Bible says the exact opposite. Islam is a antichrist system, an antichrist religion that opposes the teachings of the Bible at every single point. Right down to lying about the Bible, rewriting about the Bible, 
rewriting the Bible, making it sound like when Jesus is coming back, he's sort of going to be a sidekick of somebody. Sidekick of Allah. That's not what the Bible says. It says he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He has no rivals. And according to the Bible, while God loves everybody, including the sons of Keturah, the promised land belongs to the descendants of Isaac. And the only way that you would be deceived by something like what Islam is promoting is if you just didn't pay attention to what the Bible says. The Bible is crystal clear. Satan hates God. He hates the Bible. He has raised up the religion of Islam. I don't even call it so much a religion. Most of the things in Islam deal with politics. It is a political, mostly political philosophy about subduing the world under Sharia law that's just as political and ideological as is Marxism. In fact, the Marxists and Islam, they cooperate with each other. It's called the red-green access because the enemy of my enemy is my what? Is my friend. They all like this idea of world conquest because they're all on the same page. And the church of Jesus Christ, through interfaith dialogue, allowing theologians to come into the church to present the case for Islam, which is happening more and more in evangelical churches, don't understand that they are being seduced by a political philosophy that goes against the Bible at every step of the way. And we're living in an area here where Islam is on the rise. And we need some tough talk on this, don't we? We need to understand exactly what's going on. We need to understand exactly what the agenda is. We need to understand the theological agenda of Islam. And the best way to stand up against the deception of Islam is to know what the scripture actually teaches. We've had Muslims come to this church. In fact, one of our visitor bags that we give out, we believe as elders was infiltrated because there was a bag out that looked almost identical to our visitor's bags that we typically give out. But as you reached into it, you didn't find a copy of John's Gospel. You found the Quran in it. And they will come to this church and they will try to shake their hand. Oh, I can't shake your hand. My religion forbades that. But we want to invite you to our cultural inheritance center, which is down the road. We're going to have face painting for the kids. Uh, we're going to have, you know, arts and crafts and snacks and such a happy face. The truth of the matter is that's how Islam always operates when it's in the minority. The moment it gets the upper hand is the moment everything changes. And the warlike texts of the Quran become the norm. And all of the nice cuddly stuff disappears. And there is a theological war being waged on the church of Jesus Christ today. It's called Chrislam. 
let's take Christianity and Islam and let's just make it all one big happy family. That's like trying to join oil and water. Oil and water will always separate. The doctrines of Islam have nothing to do with the Bible. In fact, that is a false antichrist system. And it relates to things as simple as who's going to inherit the promised land. Isaac or Ishmael? Isaac or the sons of Keturah? Islam rewrites the passages. The Bible says something completely and totally different. In fact, Abraham is going out of his way to get Keturah's sons eastward and to not give them the entire estate, but rather to give them one-time gifts to show exactly, and he did this by way of probate, he did this in estate planning, he did it before he died, to show exactly who the heir of the promised land is. It is not Ishmael or the sons of Keturah. It is Isaac. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes this, Then the text states, He sent them away from Isaac his son. He made sure that there was a distance between Isaac and his other sons, for Isaac was to inherit the land. The Hebrew word means it was a deliberate sending away from his sons and from the promised land because they were not part of the covenant. The Abrahamic covenant will be sustained only through Isaac. Don't misunderstand me. We're not saying that God doesn't love the other people groups. He's not saying that the provision of salvation that's available in Jesus Christ, that those provisions are somehow not available for the other people groups. They are. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yet the God of the Bible has obligated himself to bless the world through the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Arnold Fruchtenbaum goes on and he says, Thus he did this, Abraham, his probate, his estate planning, while he lived. He did not wait until he died for things to be worked out. That's sadly what happens in a lot of these situations. There's no clear will or trust, and the family members you know, start to argue with each other concerning who gets what. Abraham specifically did not do it that way. He set the whole thing up prior to his death, so there would be no confusion or ambiguity on the matter because Abraham is walking in the literal promises of God. Thus, this he did while he lived. He did not wait until he died for things to be worked out in order that there be no disputes after his death whatsoever as to what was to go to Isaac and what was to go to his other sons. He divided his inheritance while he yet lived. He gave the others gifts and then sent them all away. He sent them eastward, east of the promised land, unto the east country. He sent them into the Transjordan area and the Saudi Arabia area. And then you come really to the final component of Abraham's life where his his death is recorded. 
And you see that described in verses 7 through 11. Notice his age is given. Genesis 25, verse 7. These were all the ways, or all the years, I should say, of Abraham's life that he lived 175 years. Do you realize that his old age is a fulfillment of prophecy? It's something that God said to him back in Genesis 15. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. I think 175 would qualify for that. So there's another check we can put on our checklist of prophecies that God has fulfilled. Then he dies. Verse 8, Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life. Full of years, in other words. It is a wonderful thing to leave this world saying to yourself, well, I I didn't live a perfect life. None of us do. But God's purpose and plan for my life was executed. It it was accomplished. Paul could say that. He said in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. Do you realize how few people on their deathbed, even Christians, can say this? Generally, it's regret over squandered years and wasted time. Excursions back to the sin nature for selfish, self-serving reasons. Compare what the Apostle Paul said at the end of his life to Mark Twain. Mark Twain wrote, A myriad of men are born, they labor and sweat and struggle for bread, they squabble and scold and fight, they scramble for little mean advantages over each other, age creeps upon them and infirmities follow, shames and humiliation bring down their prides and their vanities, those they love are taken from them, the joy of life is turned to aching grief. The burden of pain, care, and misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead, pride is dead, vanity is dead. Longing for release is in their place. It comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them, and they vanish. From a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing. For they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness, where they left no sign that they had ever existed. A world that will lament them for a day and forget them forever. How different the words of Paul, who said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the, the faith compared to the pagan philosophy of death. 
That's an exhortation for all of us to press into God's purpose for our lives and design so that when our turn comes to leave this world, we leave like Paul. Not like paganism, which, because it's unsubmitted to God, can't even figure out what life is about. So Abraham died full of years. And something else is very interesting here. It says he was gathered to his people. What does that mean? He was gathered to his people. On uh, A&E, the History Channel, Mysteries of the Bible, what they will tell you is the concept of the afterlife and resurrection did not exist in the time of Abraham. What they say is that is not an idea that gets developed in the Bible until the 6th century B.C. when Daniel would say, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Before this is stated, there is no clear development of the afterlife early in the Bible. Okay, well then what does it mean when it says Abraham was buried or gathered to his people? Oh, that means Abraham was buried with his family. That's all it means. You see how nonsensical that is? Abraham was not buried with his family. Where was his family? Haran. Because they came from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was not buried with, it's not like they took his bones and shipped him up to Haran. He was buried in the same place his wife Sarah was buried, in Hebron, within the land of Israel, in a cave that Abraham himself purchased at inflated prices called the Cave of Machpelah. So if that's true, and he wasn't buried with his physical family, then what does it mean when it says he was gathered to his people? What it means is when it was his time to die, his soul went to be with the righteous that were before him. Names like Noah, etc. That's the end of Abraham's life. And if that is the description, then the afterlife all the way back in Genesis 25 is crystal clear. It's there. And I'm here to tell you folks that the next life is just as real as this one. Abraham was buried with the righteous who preceded him. We don't have to twist the Bible into a pretzel by making it sound like, oh, he was just buried with his family members when his family members aren't even located in the land of Israel. Now, this expression, gathered to his people, is used here about ten times in the Bible. And then you see Abraham's actual burial, verses 9 and 10. So that then his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, 
his wife. Remember when he bought that burial plot, Genesis 23? We went into all the details of that legal transaction. That's where Sarah was buried. Abraham is buried in the exact same place in Hebron at the cave of Machpelah. And you'll also notice verse 11, and we will conclude with verse 11. It says, it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac lived by Beer Lahai Roy. Now it came about after the death of Abraham. So here's what happened. Immediately after Abraham died, somebody got blessed. That God blessed his son Isaac. See, typically when we read about Isaac so far, the child of promise, he has been blessed because he's in Abraham's lineage. In other words, it's sort of like spillover blessings from Abraham to his son Isaac. A son is blessed because the blessing of God exists on the human father, in this case, Abraham. But here is the first place in the Bible where Isaac is blessed in his own right. He is blessed in his own right, not just because he was associated with Abraham. Abraham is dead. That too is a fulfillment of prophecy. We go back to Genesis chapter 17 and verse 21, where God says this, But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. God never said of Isaac, Oh, Isaac, you're going to be blessed because of your connection to Abraham. What he said is, I'm going to bless you in your own right. I'm going to bless you on your own. And this then becomes the evidence that the Abrahamic covenant has now been transferred to Isaac, where Isaac is blessed in his own right. And we're seeing, are we not, jumping off the page here, prediction after prediction after prediction that God made that is now leaping into fulfillment. I mean, if this is true, why... Are we so doubtful about God's promises to us? Do you realize that the Lord in the Bible has made you, as a church-age believer, probably about 7,000 promises? Most of us haven't even taken stock of what we own. And yet they're there. And every single one of them will be fulfilled exactly like they're written because that's God's pattern. That pattern is very clear here as you're looking at the end of Abraham's life, his death, and then the transfer of the Abrahamic covenant to Isaac. It ends there, verse 11, and Isaac lived by Beer Lahai Roy. This is where Isaac dwelt. Where was that? Well, it means a well of living water, or it means a well of the living one, rather, who sees me. 
The exact location is unknown, though possibly it was southwest of Beersheba. There's where Beersheba was. It was the place, you remember? For the angel of the Lord comforted Hagar, who was fleeing back to Egypt. And God comforted Hagar at this exact place and told her that the child that she is bearing is named Ishmael, and he too will be blessed. He's not the covenant son, but all of these sons fall under the blessings of God. Yet the promised land, the inheritance of the estate, goes to Isaac rather than Ishmael. The promises of God and the blessings of God. The character of God by which he faithfully keeps his promises. What a wonderful thing that is and what a wonderful thing that is to enter into as a Christian. And you can only enter into it as a Christian when you get over the first hurdle, which is the gospel. Gospel means good news because it shows you how to access the spiritual wealth to the point where it's at your fingertips. You access that spiritual wealth through the gospel. The gospel being Jesus through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension bridged a gap between fallen humanity and a holy God that we cannot bridge on our own. No amount of religiosity or good works can bridge that gap. Jesus stepped out of eternity into time and bridged that gap in our place. What he asks us to do is trust in what he has done. His final words on the cross where it is finished. It's all completed. The transaction is completed. Just have to receive it as a gift. There's no good work you have to do to gain this. The good work has already been done by Jesus. You receive what he has done as a gift. And the Bible says, Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, that there's only one way to receive a gift from God, and that is to believe. Believing is the opposite of good works. The Holy Spirit convicts people of their need to trust in Christ for salvation, and then they respond through volition in their heart of hearts by trusting in the provision of Jesus Christ. And just like that, they're justified before a holy God and now have at their fingertips 7,000 promises, which according to the character of God must transpire those promises they didn't have before. And so our exhortation to people in the building, listening perhaps online, listening to archives after the fact, is to hear this message of the good news of the gospel and trust in the provision of Jesus Christ. And just like that, become a newborn child of God. What a a great time of the year to get saved. You've got Reformation Day coming up. You've got Thanksgiving coming up. You've got the birthday of Jesus that we celebrate on Christmas coming up. 
I mean, what a what a wonderful time on the calendar to enter into a relationship with God. And we want to give people that opportunity to do that as I'm speaking. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to do, join a church to do, give money to do. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where you come under this conviction and you respond by trusting in what Jesus has done. It's it's that simple. You say, well, is that your final offer? Yes. That's it. It's not going to, you won't get anything better than that. And so our exhortation is to take advantage of it and then share this message this week with others. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful as we close out the life of Abraham and how you work so strategically in his life to bring us the blessings that we now have in Jesus Christ. Help us to be good stewards of the life of Abraham as we walk by faith this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.